My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. We're here with Corey. Corey is an ambassador for the association for FTD. We're so happy to have her here and to hear her story of her journey with her late mother, Anne. Corey, thanks for being here. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, ladies. I'm excited to talk to you. So we're just going to jump right into the story. We like to start with what were those first moments of, wait a minute, what's wrong with mom? What's going on here? In about 2009, I remember I was putting my key in the door of a yoga studio where I was teaching and my phone rang and my mom called me and she was like, I have to tell you something. I was like, crap, like, what is she going to tell me? Um, And she's like, I had a kind of mental breakdown at school today. Um, and I'm going to take a leave of absence. I wasn't really sure what was happening and we'll tell you more details, but dad just wanted me to call you and let me, let you know what happened. And it turns out that she's, she was a school teacher, um, and she had started having issues at school with her lesson planning, with organizing her classrooms, role books, you know, going to meetings, different things like that. And it all kind of culminated. And she had this moment at school where she had this kind of breakdown um, and she left school and she decided to go on medical leave. But I'll never forget like putting my key in the door that day and hearing her call me and be like, oh, okay. And it didn't really process because I was like five minutes away from teaching yoga and I was like, okay, I have to teach yoga now. And then Mm -hmm. after that, things just kind of transpired from there. How old was she when she called you? that day so that would have been she would have been around 56 or 57 at the time yeah because I was not yet married and I got married in 2009 and so it was March or April of 2009 so were you living near your parents at the time I was not living near my parents my parents were living in New Jersey and I was in New York Okay. And were you seeing your mom on somewhat of a regular basis? Yeah, we were definitely getting together for family things. Sometimes she came up to see us or we went down to New Jersey to see them. It was pretty regular. You know, we didn't see them every day, but we saw them as often as we could. And when she called you, had you noticed anything beforehand or was this like a, just a bomb? Not really. Um, We had, she'd had what we were calling like panic attacks. She got lost once or twice. Um, My parents have a lake house in Pennsylvania and she got lost once or twice up there. And one of her friends who I know very well had called me, they happened to be together. And she was like, your mom like was all weird in the car. And she had this like panic attack and something happened. So she had a few small episodes like that, um, that we look back on thinking, oh, maybe that was actually something that was going on, but we didn't really think about it. Um, at the time. And aside from the panic attacks and the issues at work, were there any other kind of signs that you saw in the beginning of, was she having trouble speaking or any other of those 
you know, symptoms of FTD? At that point, no. Like I said, she was having issues at school. So when they went back to look at, thankfully she had this amazing principal who was really understanding about the situation, you know, but when you went back to look at her lesson plans book, things my dad never looked at, right? He didn't have any reason to look at those. Um, but when he went back to me and he looked at them, he was like, oh, these really don't make sense. Like things weren't written out the way that they should be organized if you're looking at like something chronological or something in a timeline form. But things after that, from that point, from 2009 until she got a diagnosis in 2011, yes, then weird different symptoms started coming out. Um, and between the point that this happened and September when I got married, she threw me a wedding shower, a bridal shower, you know, but some of the invitations that she mailed out to some of my friends, instead of saying like, oh, you know, please go to this address for the shower, they just said like Anne's house. Or, you know, it just had like a smiley face. Like there were little tiny things. Most of them were well-addressed and most of them made sense, but a few of them didn't. Things I just didn't even think anything of. I was like, oh, ah, she wrote Anne's house. Like, you know, right. um, but in hindsight, we know that it was probably that she wasn't reading and comprehending it correctly executively to write it out well. And she participated at my wedding in full capacity. And I think if you didn't know that we were dealing with this on the back end, you might not have known that anything was wrong with her. But I remember- At this point though, did you feel like mm, something isn't totally yes. kosher? Yeah, okay. we knew something was not quite right. We just didn't okay. really know what it was. I even remember okay. we went dress shopping and um, she had gotten lost on the train. She came to meet me in New York City and I remember something happened. I don't remember all the details, but I think she got off at the wrong stop before she got to Penn Station in New York. And that's something she would never do. We've taken the train for you know, 30 plus years from where my parents lived into New York City with no incident. But for some reason, she got off the wrong thing. Um, she thought she had ADHD. She wanted to get herself tested for that because she wasn't really sure what was happening. So you think she may have known something was going on with her because that's a I, big question that yes. we get like do people know that something is off i think she was definitely cognizant of it sometimes i don't think that she could put it into words well because language was definitely the variant that got affected for her the most um, but she would say things like, we're going to figure out what's happening with my brain or i don't understand why my brain isn't working that way some in the very beginning, it got, you know, less aware as time went on. But yeah, I think it's, I think she had some awareness that something was starting to shift for her. And what did you guys think was wrong? What was your first guess? I really didn't know. I really didn't know. Um, my dad took her for a full workup after she had the breakdown at school. Um, and I think the first doctor said, well, she just has Alzheimer's. Um, and then they tested her for everything under the sun. Like maybe she had lupus or, you know, they did everything that it could possibly be. Um, and then my dad decided that he wanted to go for more definitive testing. And then he took her to a bigger neurology center. And that's when they said, we know something is wrong with her. We think it's neurodegenerative. It's some type of something, but we don't know exactly what. Mm -hmm. Um, they thought, you know, they said they had, she had evidence of mini strokes, things about white matter and gray matter and all these things my brain had never understood before, never even thought about. 
I love, not love in a good way. It's more, I guess I should say I hate when doctors just, well, it's Alzheimer's. Like on what basis are you, just like if I take my kid into like the pediatrician and they're like, he has an ear infection. I'm like, you haven't checked his ear. Like I, <laughs> exactly. Really? The diagnosing to me, and I know that the medical community struggles with this disease. I think we see it across the board. People are misdiagnosed, not diagnosed at all, but it's just like, it's infuriating. Yeah. It is. And then also the second piece of that is like, how many people have we interviewed where they give them that diagnosis and then they say, nothing we can Goodbye. do for you. Bye. Yeah. Here's a pamphlet. Like, like they didn't just tell you that your loved one was terminally ill. Good luck. It's terrible. Right. Just here you go. Have a nice yeah. day. Right. Yeah. When Look you've given ASPD. a sentence. Right. When you've given essentially like a death sentence to a family. Right. And you're like, okay. Yeah. You got married. Mm -hmm. What happened after that? What did you guys see? So we just started to see little things happening. You know, she would forget how to, like she'd call me and she'd say, how do I wash my face? Or like, how do you do that makeup thing you do? Makeup thing you do. She meant, you know, like I know how to put on blush. Like how do I put on mascara? Things she just did all the time by herself. Um, Or she would call and she wouldn't be as easy to talk to on the phone. Um, or she would have trouble with sequencing an event. You know, you know that if you tell Mm -hmm. someone like wash your hands, you know that that involves soap, water, and usually some type of towel or rag or something to dry your hands with. And you'd say, wash your hands. And she'd just turn on the water and her hands would sit there and she wouldn't do anything. You know, we started Mm -hmm. to see little things like that. I think if you didn't know her really well, you probably would think that everything was okay. She looked fine. She sounded kind of fine. She participated and she would go out. Um, But to me, the biggest change was that I feel like she just kind of started to lose her. She was so bubbly and so kind of effervescent Mm -hmm. and smiley. And she never lost her smile, but she definitely started to lose that kind of vivacious part of her personality. She became a little bit more apathetic in ways. Corey, are you an only child? I have two sisters. Okay. So do you think, I'm an only child, so this question probably should come from Maria, but do you think the majority of the caretaking and the kind of figuring it out and pushing for more, I don't know, medical attention was on your shoulders? No, not necessarily. I feel like my dad and my parents in every way, in any type of like family situation or kind of crisis, I feel like they really did whatever they could to make sure that we didn't bear the brunt as kids of taking care of the adult things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like my dad was really trying to do that in this situation and pretty much through until we kind of all started realizing how much we needed each other to kind of bear the burden of the journey of FTD. I know for myself, I am that person, like I'm a take on the journey type of a person. So I definitely think I did that just for as me and for me, but I wouldn't say that I felt like I had family pressure to do it. Okay. So we went to the second set of doctors and what happened next? So between 2009 and 2011, it was just a series of 
tests and MRIs and doctor's visits and things like that um, with no conclusive diagnosis except to say, you know, there is definitely something happening in her brain that is causing the symptoms that you are seeing. It's neurodegenerative in some way. There were always the words dementia and Alzheimer's, but there was never anything specific. Um, and we went to one particular appointment and I'll never forget because both my sis, all three of my sisters and I were there, plus my dad. And I remember the neurologist saying to my family, well, we're not really sure what's happening, but your mom would be what I call passing the lunch line test. I probably said in my brain, like, Corey, fix your face and say something nice because you're not really sure, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, what does he mean? And she was like, well, you know, if she were to walk into a cafeteria line and like order something, she'd pass the cafeteria test. Like she, they would think nothing was wrong with her. She'd be able to order and like, it would be fine. And I remember- so how's that helpful? That. Right. And so we were, dis- or I was disappointed. Um, and we were, you know, to say the least, felt like we really needed more than what we were getting. And that's when we went and we saw someone else for a second opinion. Um, and when okay. we saw a second doctor for a second opinion, that's when he said his diagnosis was FTD. And when you um, got the diagnosis, was it, what, what did you feel? Do you remember? I'm sure you remember. Yeah. I was it relief remember. or was it like anger, a little bit of both? It was, uh, it was relief. It was confusion. It was sadness. It was, oh my God, what, what, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the room that we were in for the office was so tiny. It was this little like square size and there were six people in the room. I think it was mm-hmm. my sisters, my dad, my mom, the neurologist, and my mom's, my aunt, my mom's sister. And I remember being like, oh, there's like a lot, like I felt like the room was kind of closing in because he'd given us that diagnosis. And then you like walk out onto the streets of New York and you're like, wait, there's cars. And, and so it's a weird, the, everything is normal. And you've just gotten the, oh my God, your life is no longer normal news. So it was, was really- Was your mom ever resistant towards going to the doctor? It's a good question. I didn't go with her to all of her appointments. I went to a lot of them. And I would say for the most part, no, she wasn't really resistant to it. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you became involved with the AFTD and how were they a resource to your family? Um, So actually it was the doctor who diagnosed my mom who first alerted us that there was something called AFTD. At that point, I'm not actually sure it was called AFTD, but I think the website might've still been PICS um, because FTD was also, you know, founded by Alfred Pick. Um, And so I remember he said, you know, you're going to need support. You're going to need a lot of it. And here are some things you can look into. And that was one of the websites. And I remember reaching out to them um, just for information for our family. Like we got on the newsletter and different things like that. I think maybe about not even a year after her diagnosis, we took advantage of their respite grants. So they have respite and caregiver grants where you can apply Comstock grants um, and get a stipend of money that the caregiver can use for a variety of different things to help support them in their journey as a caregiver. So we did that for my dad um, and that was really helpful and really supportive. And then I just stayed on the mailing list and I went to um, one of the conferences when they had one in New York. And I was there. You were? Oh, I that one. Why I was there. there. Yeah, White Plains. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, that was my first AFTD conference. And my that daughter, 
Oh, that's so crazy. I was, I think Elisa had just been born. That was in March and Elisa was born in January. So I was like still in a fog of like, oh my God, I just had a baby. Um, and and I went, this like most depressed. I mean, right. it was a very, it was a well done. Conference, it was a well done conflict. Yes. But right. You're just being bombarded of like your mom is yeah, not right. going to survive this one. Yeah, exactly. And here you are in like mommy land brain fog, totally. you know, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where I was. We were there. That's oh, so cool. Oh my gosh. Small world. I know a total small world. And so I went to that conference and I filled out a volunteer form, but never really did anything. And I even said to them at one point, oh, I could do like yoga for your support groups. That's what I do in my professional life. Um, and that never really panned out, but I always stayed on things and I did like some small volunteer things. And then they reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be a regional coordinator. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. That was a few years down the road. And um, did you I, do it? I did it. I was a regional coordinator too. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, for the West Coast. Wait, but what? while I was at the conference, I was still the regional coordinator. Oh, this is so crazy. I know. I know. Oh the smallest God. world. Oh, that's, that's so crazy. So funny. I feel like I'm in New York in your room with you. That's a weird you But I feel <laughs> I like now I'm like, we're buds. So it. we're buds. Our paths have crossed. Totally. Exactly. All right, totally. guys, I'm out. I'm going to go yeah. Can you leave? Log off. I'm Maria. No. <laughs> so yeah. Sorry so to interrupt. No, don't worry. It's so cool. So I became a regional coordinator and it was probably the best thing that I ever did that I never knew I needed to do. For me, it was really a silver lining. I never knew it exists in the FTD journey because the people that I got to meet um, and some of the relationships that I formed have just been amazing. It was for the first time I was like, oh, like these people really get like what is happening to my life? What is happening to my mom? What is happening to my family? Not that I didn't have friends and support networks, but um, they really got it. And it was really empowering to do something about this horrible awful situation just like your podcast right so it's just an opportunity to be able i feel like in this crappy situation of dealing with ftd to be able right. to do one positive thing where i can say oh i can do something positive for right. this disease to me was so empowering and really cathartic and i think it was a huge therapeutic part of the journey because I, I had to deal with a lot of stuff as I did it, you know, and I had to talk about FTD and I had to talk about my mom and I had to talk about what happened and different things like that. But I was also like, oh, I can do this. Like, so, uh, you know, I always say to them, I don't think they, I hope they always know what they're giving to their volunteers as a possibility by volunteering. So for me, it's been one of the best things I've ever done you know, on this FTD journey. That's amazing. Yeah. You mentioned your daughter, that you had your daughter in the midst of all of this. Tell us what this has been like for you and kind of what your perspective has been in dealing with becoming a mom, especially while losing your mom. And it's just all awfulness, it's but I want to kind of hear from you like what it's awful. been like for you. I think for a while I was like, oh, I'm okay. Like I can handle this, you know? And then I got pregnant and then I had a daughter. And I think when you have a kid and then you realize what your parent was doing or did for you or how they raised you and what they gave you. And I realized that so much of that was now gone and that she couldn't experience my mom 
the way I had experienced her or the way she could experience the grandparent aspect of my mom was so sad. And the fact that I was here, I was with this new life and I was losing my mom. It was awful. It was, it was really, yeah, it really sucked. Um, you know, and I couldn't call her. I couldn't ask her like, Oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, what do I do now? You know? Um, and she did, they came, like, I have a picture of her in the hospital room when Elisa was born and she was able to hold her with my dad's. Oh, I don't actually think, no, she didn't hold her. My dad was holding her. So she never like, you know, she didn't get to do that. She was smiling and beaming. My husband Mm -hmm. is right here. I'll tell you like, you know, um, but she didn't get to experience it the way any other regular, regular, quote unquote, grandparent gets to experience it. And I think losing your parent while you are becoming a parent is one of the most devastating things ever. How did you take care of yourself during this time? And it's okay if you say, I did not take care of myself. Um, I mean, sometimes I think I did a good job. Sometimes I think I did a really crappy job. I did a lot of therapy and I think that that was really helpful. And I know that that sometimes is a really hard thing to do, but for me, I just knew I needed it. It was a big stressor and I feel really lucky that I have really good support in my family and in my friends network. So I leaned on them a lot, but it's hard because, you know, like you guys both know, it's no one really knows what it feels like, right? No one really knows exactly how it feels. So I just tried to be as kind to myself as I could with the whole situation. And sometimes I was better at it than others. Sometimes I feel like I put it in a little package and, you know, blocked it away because I needed to deal with the house renovation that we were doing or having a kid or, you know, working or things like that. And other times it would explode and come out. And I just think it's, you ride this wave of grief before it's, definitively grief, right? Because I think for the entire time that you're losing your parent until they pass away, you're grieving. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to quickly go back real, real quick to the um, room in New York and then you guys go out on the street. What happened? What was the next step for you guys? You got the, the official diagnosis and then they're like, okay, so good luck. And what did you guys do? So, you know, he told us a few things like make sure you get support, think about like long-term affairs, finances, you know, that type of stuff. And I think for a while we were kind of like, okay, we can manage this, right? Like we'll move along. Um, My dad is amazing in terms of his practicality and the way that he takes care of things. So I feel like he did a lot of things behind the scenes that maybe we didn't know about in terms of, you know, like paperwork and all those types of things and making sure that my mom had access or didn't have access or things were in his name, you know, things that we didn't have to then get burdened with. Um, So he did a lot of those types of things. And then we just kind of started, you know, like troubleshooting as things came up, right? As she had more issues as we, she wasn't allowed to drive anymore. I think as there were transition points, I feel like you get to like, you're like, Oh, we can handle this FTD. And then something shifts and you're like, okay, no, we got to make a new plan. Like how do we deal with this part of FTD? And so I think we just kind of journeyed it in that way. It wasn't like we said, okay, in this year we're going to do this. And in this year we're going to do this. We kind of just, as things rolled along, we were like, Oh, we can't do that anymore. We have to go to plan B. Or plan C or D. 
so the progression of the illness, she, from diagnosis to her passing away was 10 years. Is that right? Essentially, yeah. She got officially diagnosed in 2011 and passed away in 2019. But like I said before, we knew something was wrong around 2009, if not a year or so before. So Mm -hmm. give or take Mm -hmm. a 10 year journey. Wow. That's and like parts, me. Mine is really long. I'm yeah. Like, okay. Right. You're like, oh, this, fight. Okay, this is a long, yeah. yeah. I yeah. describe it as like the, you know how they always tell you to rip off a bandaid like really fast so you yeah. don't feel all the hairs and like it doesn't hurt so yeah. much. I feel like this FTD journey was like the, oh, you want to feel this next hair that's getting pulled off as you peel off okay. the bandaid? Oh no, we're going to stop. We're not going to take it all the way off yet. You know, like right. we're just going to that is such a good analogy it is we are using that that's good that to me is how i would describe the long it's just slow pain slow and painful right and other journey that's the thing if i've learned one thing about ftd i've learned that everybody's story is similar in terms of a thread but everybody's story is different so Mm -hmm. while mine is long some are short you know um Mm -hmm. but yeah it was about 10 years give or take and she just really kind of lost her capacity to do pretty much everything. Okay. And I know you mentioned a facility. When did you guys decide to put her in a Um, healthcare center? She went into a healthcare facility around 20, June of 2016, right after my youngest sister got married. Yeah. And And what was that like for you guys making that decision? It was heartbreaking it was, it was awful. Like, but for our family, it was, I won't say it was an awful decision that I don't mean that like putting her in the facility that day of actually moving her in was really, really hard. Um, I think we knew for our family, or at least I felt like this was the best way to take care of her, to take care of my dad so that we could take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, because I just felt like it gave us the opportunity to take care of our family. And it's what she would have wanted. She never wanted to be a burden to anyone ever. That was never her style. And so I think she would have said like, no, it's okay. Like have someone good take care of me so you can take care of yourselves. So you can enjoy your life that you're living. So you can continue to, you know, make memories and have things and, it gave us that for sure, but it's really hard to see your loved one in a facility and be like, Oh, I'm going to New Jersey to visit my mom for the day. And people would be like, have fun. And I'm like, well, yeah. it's not really like people who didn't know, you know, I had totally. to be like, Oh, actually I'm going to live, visit my mom. Who's, you know, 60 something and lives in an assisted living facility. And she's the youngest person there because she has dement- this rare form of dementia, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a delight. It's yeah. so much fun. Yeah. I, I used to, treat myself with like milkshakes or something, you know, totally guilty pleasures for the ride home. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So we, so she was in the facility from about 2016 until she passed. When you look back, I know it's so much easier to say like, okay, that was obviously FTD, but what are like the big behaviors that you can look back on and be like, okay, before and after diagnosis? Um, I think for my mom, it was just like a 
lack of understanding about how things kind of function, right? Like what I was saying before about washing your hands, you'd be like, oh, mom, you have to go to the bathroom. And she'd like walk into the ladies room, but then not know what to do. Or, you know, you'd give her something to eat with and she'd pick up the other utensil or like pick up the bowl instead of use the spoon. Like there were lots of just kind of weird things like that that happened. Mm -hmm. The thing that I can say when I hear other FTD stories is that my mom was never behavioral. Like she never did any really she did some weird things, but she never did anything like violent. She was never aggressive, nothing like that. If anything, I feel like it was kind of the opposite. She got like really apathetic, you know, in order to let her do something. It was really like, you had to plan it all. You had to do everything. It wasn't like, you know, she's like, I want to go outside and read a book or like, I want to plant flowers. You were like, Oh mom, let's do this. Or let's go for a walk. And she enjoyed those things while she could still do them. But there was no kind of impetus on her to do that. And she was the energizer bunny, like always. So for us to see that was kind of like, wait, what, you know, go ahead. Not a clinician, but as I've listened to you tell the story, it, it sounded more like, um, like my mom, like primary progressive aphasia than a than a behavioral um a lot of similarities and some of the things that you've been talking about definitely ppa yeah definitely ppa and when i read all the research that i read like that to me is my mom like those were the you know she couldn't i remember you know like the mme test the mini mental exam test where they ask you Mm -hmm. to like draw the clock and like all that stuff i remember every time she like couldn't figure out how to draw a clock or like all those things my mom had the most beautiful penmanship like her cursive was impeccable and i remember as like when she could still kind of write or thought she could write like her penmanship was just so different it was like loopy and like just this penmanship that wasn't her um so I feel like she lost all the kind of dynamic qualities that made her who she was I think a lot of our listeners and probably Maria and myself as well are interested not interested that sounds like tell us more juicy I know what you're gonna say Um, I know what you're gonna say (laughs) the passing what was that like for your family? Mainly you, because we're speaking with you, but what was it like? It's funny, as you say that now, and we're recording this like four weeks out from the year anniversary of my mom's death. Yeah. Um, My sister and I were saying, it's like, I feel like in some ways it's been so long. And in some ways yet, I remember every single detail of what happened. So I was actually in Italy And my husband and my daughter and I had gone on vacation to meet my dad. My dad is from Italy. I feel like the backstory here is a little helpful. So um, my mom and my dad, their families were family friends when they were younger. My maternal grandmother was my dad's godmother. Did you following that? Yes. So my mom's mom was my dad's godmother. Um, but my dad's family lived in Italy for most of their growing up. Um, and so they happened to meet, not meet for the first time they had met when they were younger, they met in Italy and then I'm going to (laughs) cry. Um, and so they met in Italy and things went from there, but, um, we were actually in Italy when we got the call that things were kind of taking a turn for the worst. We had only been in Italy for about 48 hours. Um, so maybe in some way it's kind of like, you know some part of fate or something, something 
I don't know, maybe some silver lining that I was in the city that my dad kind of like knew he was going to marry my mom in with Mm -hmm. him when he, um, when we got the call. So we got the call. We weren't exactly sure what was happening because there was lots of miscommunication. We, we were in a totally different time zone. We had to, you know, talk to my sisters and stuff. And then we had to fly home and not really know what was going to happen. Like, I remember getting on the airplane thinking like, I don't know if my mom will be alive when I land in New Jersey. And that was so, so heart wrenching, but I was able to see her and we were able to be there. So it happened kind of quickly, but I still, you know, I wasn't necessarily prepared that it was about to happen. I think it was, so at the end, like a lot of other FTD patients, my mom obviously started having swallowing and eating issues. And so she was not, she was on a period, she'd been on a period diet for a while and it sounded like she kind of had stopped eating over the course of a few days, I had seen her a week before. And so it sounded like, you know, that just kind of happened. And then I think from there, she just, you know, it was her time. I'm so well, sorry. Thank you. I mean, and you're in Italy. Like yeah. Of all places, the place where my mom said she threw three coins over the fountain and said, like, I'm going to marry Jim. You know, mm-hmm. and she always told us that story. Like that was their story. Anyone that knows them knows, you know, pretty much knows that story. So in some way, maybe it was, I don't know, something that Very we were there. there. Yeah, yeah, something. I'm not exactly sure what. And after the passing and now almost a year later, what does it feel like? Every day is a little different. You know, they say that grief is a waves of emotion, right? And I feel like sometimes those waves are really big and knock you down and it takes a lot longer to get up and there's more sand to brush off and other times the waves are tinier. Lately they feel a little bit bigger again and I think that might just be like in preparation for Mm -hmm. knowing that we're coming up on the year of her anniversary of her death. It's just, it's been a roller coaster and then throw in that there was, you know, a pandemic in the middle of it. And so, but I had the opportunity to be able to go and see my parent and we were able to have a funeral and do those things and have those types of rituals. And it was really exhausting, but really wonderful at the same time. Mm -hmm. I know that after your mother's passing, she gave the incredible gift of donating her brain for research. Can you share with our listeners that whole experience? So we, as you said, we did decide to do brain donation upon my mom's death. And we just got the results of the autopsy that go along with the brain donation. And they, in fact, indicate that my mom did not have FTD. The pathology report indicated that it was early onset Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia. So very different than what we heard or what we kind of lived for these last 10 plus years and thinking that it was FTD. So to say it's been a myriad of emotions would be an understatement. Really emotional to hear that and kind of process all of it. But I feel like it's just another piece of the story that I have lived. Um, And it doesn't take away from the fact that it's still a disease that kind of pulled away this person that was amazing to us. And I feel like it really highlights the fact that there is still so much unknown about FTD and that we just have to continue to raise awareness that everybody should be able to do brain donation and have an autopsy so that they can find out what was in fact happening, you know, to their loved one and perhaps why. So I think that's really important. 
Well, what I want to say to you is that I really appreciate you doing this interview with us and sharing that. And I imagine with everything else that you've gone through over the past 10 years to then kind of have that, that news is just add another layer and more emotion. So I do appreciate that you're sharing that. And I think that there's definitely someone who's going to listen to this and have a similar experience and relate to what you're going through. So I just really, really appreciate it. I know Rachel does too. So we learned a lot about Anne's journey with FTD, but I think it's very important to highlight who she was before the disease took over. So why don't you tell us a little bit about her childhood, growing up, but really focus on her personality and who she was. So my mom's name is Anne, as you said. She grew up in Kearney, New Jersey, which is something I feel like if you knew her, she always was like, I'm from Kearney. And no matter where we were, like we could be on a vacation on the other side of the country or like a different country altogether. And she'd meet someone from New Jersey and have some type of connection about like Kearney or where she grew up or something like that. So I feel like it's a big piece of who she was. She has an older sister, Margaret, and a younger brother, Gerard. She was Italian. Woo! Yes. Woohoo! Yes. So she was Italian <laughs> and Irish. So my oh gran- my gosh, that's me. Yes. Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> my dad was like Italian and Irish, like this little fair skin, always red cheeks, blonde hair, but the temper of a woo. Oh my god, <laughs> Rachel. There's so many similarities here. I know. Oh my goodness. I know. Crazy. Um. So yes. Yeah, so my mom was Italian and Irish. Um, Her mom was Italian. Her dad was Irish. So she had the best of both worlds in that speak. Um, And she always liked to remind us that even though my dad was Italian and she was part Italian, there was part of us that was Irish. So like on (laughs) St. Patrick's Day, we always had Irish soda bread and corned beef cabbage and stuff like that. But then, you know, she was always making Italian dishes as well. Okay. We really want to know how you're more about your parents meeting and their love story. Okay, so my grandmothers, my maternal and paternal grandmothers were friends. They used to go out in New Jersey. I have pictures of them from when they were young, all dolled up in their, you know, gear and ready to go. <laughs> um, these two Italian ladies, and they all, they both were from different parts of Italy. So when they spoke Italian, they sometimes didn't understand each other's like little dialects, which was always funny. That's so um, funny. But what happened was, was that my dad's mom found out that they were moving to Italy, but she wanted before they put my dad on a boat, because of course, when you have a new baby that's like six weeks old and you have to go to Italy, what do you do in the fifties? You get on a boat. So before she took my dad to Italy via boat, she wanted to have him baptized here, but she didn't have enough time to make a baptism gown. So her friend, Netta, my mom's mom, gave her the baptismal gown that my aunt had been baptized in my mom's mom was his godmother and they moved off to Italy. A year later, my mom is born in the States and my grandma, also my dad's godmother, baptizes my mom and baptizes my mom in the same gown that my dad was baptized in about a year earlier. Wow. I know. (laughs) Um, And so they, my mom always knew about the Jeremias when she was here in New Jersey, but they were mostly in Italy. They were back and forth a few times. And when my mom was older with her sister, I believe they had graduated college, 
um, they went on a trip to Europe and my grandma said, when you get to Rome, you look up the Jeremias, you'll stay with them. Jim will take you out, you know, things like that. And so the story goes that my mom met my dad in Italy and, you know, he took her around and she says that she knew that he was the one and she went to Trevi Fountain and threw three coins over her, over her shoulder. Um, and the rest is history. And then the three of us were born and we were all baptized in that same dress. This is like a movie. Yeah, I know. It's the best kind of movie. Full of Italians. Yeah, full of Italians. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. So all then baptized in it. So then your mom brought him. Okay, she brought him back to the states. Uh, no, she didn't. She didn't bring him back. Um, my dad. I think they visited Italy in the summer, and at that point, my dad was here in the states for college. My dad had come okay. back to the states for college. Okay. Um, and so they started dating um, after college and got married shortly after that. Wow. Yeah. How many years had they been married when your mom passed? Uh, they were married for forty-six years. Forty-six years. Forty-six years. Oh my gosh, I am so obsessed with the baptismal gown story. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm obsessed with the Italian. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Tell us what your mom was like. What was her personality like? She was so bubbly. Um, She was funny. She was a hard worker. She was a literal energizer bunny. She always was doing a project like steaming woodwork or my parents bought this lake house and it had all this ugly brown paneling and my mom in one or two summers repainted by hand the entire inside of the house like primed it sanded it the whole deal and like painted it white and then it was like this cool white paneling you know she was always had some project she'd go to a garage sale or an antique store and find this like but I would be like, mom, come on, like we're buying that chair. She's like, no, I'm going to take it home and we're going to do this to it. And then we're going to use this paint. And she'd come up with this like amazingly cool design thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, super creative. I love super that. Super creative and crafty in lots of different ways. She was also an amazing cook, um, who just kind of loved to feed people and feed her family. So there was no shortage of that in our house. Some of her meals I liked less than others, but for the most part, <laughs> um, they were always good and really lovely. And we have so many family recipes that we keep mm-hmm. and that we pass down, which is really wonderful. Tell us about her teaching days. Before I was born, she taught for, I think, maybe four or five years. And then when I was born and my next sister was born, she stopped teaching for a little while. And then in between that, she got into real estate. And she was, you know, like, I'd go to people's houses when I was in middle school and high school and stuff. And there'd be this sticker or like magnet of my mom on their refrigerator. And be like, oh, my mom is like looking at us, you know. But everybody knew her. And I think it was because she was a people person. She kind of loved to, you know, she could take anyone into a house and say, oh, well, you could do this or you could fix this. And she was so warm and like friendly in that way that I think she just really excelled at that job. And then my youngest sister is nine years younger than me. And after she went back to school, when she was school age, my mom decided that she was going to go back to teaching because she kind of had the time to. Um, So she went back to teaching. She always taught first and second grade. And she taught up until 2009 when she had to retire after she had that breakdown. Yeah. 
So I was picturing in my mind that she was like a young, she was like an yeah, elementary grade. school teacher. Yeah. yeah. She was definitely an elementary school the teacher. The bubbly, yes. like she was Energizer bunny. Yeah. Like yep. that's what you need. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly how she was. Her class was called, um, my husband made a sign for her because our last name is Jeremiah, but most people always saw this, saw it and said Jeremiah. So she had Mrs. G's like bullfrog alley. That was a little sign that was outside her class. You know, she loved corny, good things like that. So yeah. And a very important question. If Anne was here, how do you think she would like to be remembered? I think she would like to be remembered for the wonderful person that she was. Not what she became because of her diagnosis. Sorry, She had such a love of life and of people and of her people. And so I think she would just want to be remembered for that. And she'd want everybody to have a good time. She wouldn't want people to sit around and sulk and be sad for her. You know, she'd want it to be a party. Like that's what she'd want for her, for people to remember her by. She'd want us to tell funny stories. I will, I was so surprised at her funeral. My dad and her were really close with their church and their church community. And so at her funeral, after my dad had given the eulogy and I read the reading that she wanted read, which she had cut out and put in an envelope and marked it to be read at Anne's funeral. And we found it when my dad sold my house that they lived in the past 25 years. Just as I know. But anyways, so after those two readings had been done, the priest like pulled out a microphone and was standing in the middle of the church. And he was like, okay, so we're going to do something we don't normally do. And he, it was like open mic hour. And he gave people the mic and let people say things about my mom, which was just so wonderful to hear so many of her friends get up. Some of them told funny stories, things like that. But I think it was just what she would have wanted. It was uplifting and it was remembering who she was as this vivacious, fun, loving, warm spirited person. And so that's how I think she'd want to be remembered. Is there anything that you do with your daughter that's just a special thing that reminds you of your mom or you feel like she's with you guys? So many things. (laughs) So many many things. You know, I always try and remind her, like when I was cooking with her the other day or we made banana bread and she was like, who who taught you how to make this? And I was like, this is Noni's recipe. You know, I really Mm -hmm. try and teach her about who she was because she didn't know my mom in the capacity that she would have known her. She only knew my mom when she was really, you know, not speaking, talking, you know, walking differently, things like that. So I really want her to know who she was as a person. My mom always, when she tucked us in, she used her thumb and she made the sign of the cross on her forehead. Even my like friends, when we would have sleepovers, she'd like give everyone a Mm -hmm. cross on their forehead. So I do it to my daughter, you know, like traditions at Christmas time and things like that. I always try and do. My mom always said, you know, like do a good deed and pass something along, do a random act of kindness. So I try and teach those things to Elisa. So lots of things. She's in there in so many ways. She's with you every day. Yeah. And milkshake and ice cream. My mom had a love for ice cream like no one else I know. So I definitely have (laughs) given that to Elisa as well. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, tell us a little bit about what you're going to read. So I'm going to read a few passages from some letters that my mom's friends wrote to her. So a few years ago, I thought it would be a great way for us to kind of hold memories of my mom. I remember saying sometimes it's hard to remember 
what it was like, what she was like before FTD. But I really think that having those memories written down, hearing them, sharing them is so important. And so we asked friends and family to write a letter. We called it to Anne with love or with love um, to Anne. They wrote love letters to her essentially and kind of talked about what they remembered most about her and what they cherished about their friendship. So I'm gonna read a few things that a few different people wrote. So the first one says, throughout one's life, you have the opportunity to meet thousands of people. With a select few of those people, you develop a bond that transcends everything that life throws at you. You will become lifelong friends and be able to share the journey together. Annie G, that's what a lot of people call my mom, is one of those special people. One of the next letters ends with, I always think of Anne as the Energizer Bunny. She was never idle and was so creative. Her talent for sewing and decorating was invaluable to me, and she guided me through many home improvement projects over the years. Her cheerfulness and giving spirit radiated in everything she did. To this day, I still see that spark in her whenever she sees us, and I know that although this disease has shadowed her life, she is still the same inside. It is that person that we continue to love, support, and pray for every day. There's two more. So Anne had a personality that could light up a room. No matter where she was, her smile, still ever so present when I see her, is infectious. And the last one is, if anyone has been as fortunate as we are to know Anne and share so many life memories with her, you will also see her smile in many places. And if you close your eyes, without a doubt, Annie G's effervescent smile is coming right back at you. And I think it just captures who she was. My mom lost pretty much everything, but yet she never lost her smile. Um, that's really who she was. Special thank you to Corey for bravely sharing her story with us this week. We release new episodes each week on Mondays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with us, you can reach out to us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast, and you can also apply to be interviewed for the podcast at artjunkstudios.com slash Podcast. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is by Bailey Kent.